Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, and we'll be visiting Genesis 17 and Romans chapter 7 as well at certain points in our study if you're saving spots in your Bible or taking notes. Ephesians 2, Genesis 17, and Romans 7. The whole theme of the book of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace and God's grace. But before we can walk in the riches of God's grace, we need to understand uh, what those riches are. And so what Paul has been doing from chapter one is laying out for us all the blessings that we have because we're in Christ. Now, when we were studying chapter two, Paul's final thought in verse 10, where we left off, was that um, God has good works for us to do and that we need to live them out. But we're not gonna get there till chapter four, to that thought. And so, Paul now, instead of telling us how to live those good works out that God's prepared for us to do, he pivots in verse 11 because he's not done yet telling us about the riches we have in Christ. And so what we're going to move in verse 11 is we're going to get to the next blessing, but it's based on everything we learned in verses 1 through 10. The next blessing is that Jesus is our peace. Now, I'm going to start in verse 4, but we'll pick it up in verse 11. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, that salvation's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, in light of all that, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, Remember that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. When he says in verse 11, wherefore, it harkens back to everything we've learned already in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but in particular, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Because we were dead in trespasses and sins, but by God's intervention, we are now made alive together with Jesus, raised up together with Jesus, and enthroned together with Jesus. Because of that, we must do something. Remember. It's a command. And what must we remember? That you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. And then he's going to digress for a second. But that's what we need to remember. That in time past, before you trusted Jesus, you had a different title than in Christ. That's our title now. But prior to coming to Christ, we had a different title. We were, unless you're Jewish, Gentiles. And most of Paul's uh, recipients of this letter in Ephesus are Gentiles. He says, you were in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Now, there's an untranslated definite article here. So it's, you were the Gentiles in the flesh. You were part of a group. It signifies a distinct class of people. Those who are physically descended from non-Israelis. You're not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So those 
people, that distinct class of people, Gentiles in the flesh, they were given another title or another label by the Israelis of Paul's day. They were called the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised. Now, what does that mean, you know, that you're the uncircumcised? Well, to understand that, we have to go way back to Genesis with when God first told Abraham to circumcise himself and his family. So let's go back to Genesis 17, and let's find out about circumcision. I'm not going to go into the ritual or rite of circumcision. Use Google (laughs) or whatever search engine you use. I'm going to assume everyone knows what that is. Genesis 17, verse 7. Give you a little bit of context. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you that through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you the Messiah is going to come. I'm choosing you from all these people I could choose to be that line that that's going to happen through. And so, awesome, right? Well, Abraham and Sarah, the problem is Sarah's barren, she can't have kids, and then Abraham gets to a place where he's going to have a hard time making kids. And so, they decide together, you know what? We need to help God out. And so they come up with this plan where Abraham's going to sleep with her handmaid. She'll be elevated to wife status, become a second wife, and then he'll sleep with her, and the child that comes from her will be attributed to Sarah and will thereby be the one that God promised. And so they go with the plan. Hagar gets pregnant. Ishmael's born. Yay, we helped God out. Everything's good. And then... 15 years go by, or how many, many years are listed here go by, and God doesn't talk to Abraham at all, not that we have any record of in the Scripture. And when he shows up, he goes, Abraham, enough's enough. You've been doing things your own way. You've been walking in the flesh, your own ideas, your own plans for long enough. Walk thou before me. That's how Genesis 17, 17 starts. Walk thou before me. It's enough's enough. Time to start trusting me again. Time to start doing things my way again. And so verse 7, he says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, You shall keep my covenant therefore you and your seed after you in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token, a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so here's where God lays out. He goes, enough's enough. It's time to start walking with me again. It's time to start doing things my way again. And so this is the deal I'm going to make with you, Abraham. You're going to enter into this agreement with me. You're going to enter into this covenant with me, and you're going to sign of that, that you are going to re-enter that with me, is you're going to get circumcised, and all of your descendants after you will be circumcised. And that will be a, a token when someone is saying in their heart, hey, we're going to walk with the Lord. We're going to do things God's way. We're not going to walk in the flesh. And so the concept of cutting off a piece of the flesh, because it it symbolizes the idea of my heart is yours, God. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you say. That's what this all symbolizes, okay? Verse 12, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man, child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with the money of your stranger, which is not of your seed, 
He that is born in your house and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the idea here is that circumcision was an outward sign of your, your, that you're in covenant with God, that you are in a relationship with God. And so if you as a person in Abraham's descendants or in his household, if you're not going to get circumcised, what you're saying is, God, I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. So that's what an uncircumcised person was supposed to symbolize in contrast to the circumcised person. No problem there. Because that had nothing to do with whether you were an Israeli or not. Because verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 17 make it clear that it's included Abraham's descendants and any that was not of his seed, any non-descendants, including a servant brought from a foreigner. So the covenant was available to non-Israelis, to Gentiles. And yet at some point, rather than inviting Gentiles to join the covenant, And to get circumcised in obedience to God, Israelis started to view being uncircumcised as the problem. Just being born that way. And and, and someone who never knew about it, never doing it, that that was the problem. It also developed the view that being circumcised made you better than those who were not. And so these labels were thrown out. We're the circumcised. We're righteous. You're not circumcised, so you're wicked. Now, was that true in and of itself? Well, no, of course not. But it's the label that had been given, and thus you had two different groups. All of humanity could be classified into these two classes of people. Now, the real problem, though, was not that someone in the flesh, and that's what Paul says, he he explains, you know, that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands doesn't matter. Yeah, they might be circumcised, but if their heart's not following the Lord, doesn't matter. All you did was a really painful thing. On the other hand, he says, the labels men give don't matter, but there was a problem you still had. You had no label from God. You had no name from God. And so verse 12, he explains, this is what you need to remember, not just this, but you need to remember that at that time, verse 12, you were without Christ. It means to have no relationship, to no connection, to be apart or separated from. Christ, of course, means the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. Even if you were an unfaithful Jew, even if you were just a ritualistic Jew, you were taught the promise of Messiah's coming. You had that hope. There was hope for something different and something better. But Gentiles didn't have that. They had no teaching on that. They had no exposure to that. They were, had no connection at all to Christ, to the Messiah. In addition to that, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It wasn't that they were aliens or foreigners. It literally means to be alienated. They were completely alienated from the citizenship, the commonwealth of Israel. They were not a part of the nation of Israel. You were separated from that. And then thirdly, he says, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, foreigners to all the covenants that God confirmed with the people of Israel. God confirmed the covenant he made with Abraham to Isaac later on, and then he confirmed the covenant he made to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob later on, and then he confirmed the covenant to the entire nation of Israel that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob later on. All of those covenants and all their renewals that God made with the people of Israel, they had no 
experience of that. The Ephesian Christians, and I would dare say many of us, knew none of that before they came to Christ. None of it. They grew up and lived life completely alienated from the promise of Messiah. And therefore, they had no expectation of anything better and no relationship with God. Oh, they may have served other gods or may have been religious or maybe even worked hard to better the human condition. But there was no promise that any of that would work, right? I mean, you had no guarantee that any of that would work, that your whole life energy that was poured into that would ever bear any fruit here or in eternity. Any hope they had wasn't based in reality, and therefore there was no more hope for them than a fairy tale might give. I'm always amazed when people talk about, you know, their plans or their ideas for society, for the world, or life, and they speak so authoritatively as if they've, they've got something none of us have, right? I don't have anything that no one else has. I just follow the thing that the one who does know everything gave us. That's different. That has substance to it. That has a hope that is sure. But ideas that are created with my own mind, well, there's no guarantees. And so when I think about that, you know, could you imagine living life without Jesus right now? If you're saved, if you're a believer here today, can you imagine living life without Jesus? Can you imagine living life without the hope of him coming to fix this mess we're in? Seriously. Like, that sounds awful. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're just kind of on our own. Like, it's nothing, there's nothing, I mean, we've got to figure it out. I would get a bunker. You know, I would, I would start storing up all the canned food and everything, right? You know? I would go try to find a group that, that I believe in and associate with to somehow, you know, save me from the mess that's coming. I get it. If you have a bunker, it's okay. (laughs) I can't imagine life without the hope of him coming to fix our world. It sounds horrible. I can't fathom doing life like that now that I know him. But here's the reality that Paul's saying. That's how we did life before we knew Jesus. That's how we did life, all of us, before we knew Jesus. And so we must never, ever forget what our life was like before Jesus, okay? We need to remember that. That's not all we need to remember. We also need to never, ever forget what Jesus has done for me now that I've made the decision to follow him. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you know, as opposed to those who were alienated from God and his people and the covenants and the promise of Messiah, now in Christ Jesus, now that you're in Christ, you who were sometimes afar off, sometimes doesn't mean you were, weren't far off sometimes, it means at some point in your life before Christ, you were far off, fact. Those of you who were, now that you're in Christ, you are made nigh, you have become close by the blood of Christ. Close to what? Well, the hope of Messiah, the promise of a relationship with God. We've been brought close to all those things now that we're in Christ. And that was made possible by the blood of Christ. It didn't happen because we got circumcised or we decided to improve ourselves. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the only thing that could bring us close to God, and it did. Aren't you glad that Jesus brought you close? I mean, think about that. 
wherever, I mean, it's great to be here today and sense the presence of the Lord, right? But like, I can go anywhere and I'm in, I'm in right relationship with God. I'm brought close, even when I feel alone. If you are in Christ, you have been enthroned with him at the Father's own right hand. That's our standing. And so Paul, in, in reminding them, he says, hey, you need to remember this. Remember who you were and remember who you are. And that setup then brings us to our next blessing. That's how we're going to understand this next blessing that we have in Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace who has made both one. The word here, peace, it, it refers to uh, harmonious relationships, tranquil relationships. It, it can refer to harmony in life or just things are good, you have peace in your heart, but most often it refers to having harmonious relationships with others, having tranquility in your relationships with others, no strife, okay? Jesus is the basis of our peace with God and with one another. Now, the rest of Ephesians chapter 2 is all centered around those two ideas, how Jesus is our peace with God and how Jesus is our peace with one another. In two weeks, since we've got the guest speaker next week, we'll finish it up and we'll get to how Jesus is our, the basis of our peace with God. But this morning, we're going to look at where Paul starts. It's by showing how he's the basis for our peace with one another. For it says, for he is our peace who has made both one. Our peace. Who are? Who both? Well, the two groups he's already mentioned. The uncircumcised and the circumcised. The Jew and the Gentile. Jesus, it says, he is our peace, both Jew and Gentile, who has, how? He has made both one. He has done something that makes him our peace. That, that why he's explaining that he's our peace, because he has made these two groups, Jew and Gentile, one. The word one there, it means that which has been united. It's not just one, but it takes of two things that were separate, but have now been joined together. It's the complete contrast with being divided or consisting of separate parts. Before the cross, there were separate parts, Jew and Gentile. But through Jesus, there exists a unity. No separate parts anymore. Now, how did Jesus do that? I mean, it's not hard. I mean, just look out in the world today and you, you find more than just two parts of humanity. We can divide the humanity into lots of different parts. So how did Jesus take all the parts and make them one? And a few other questions we need to look at. Okay, so does that mean that all believers are part of Israel now? I mean, that's, you know, if, if, if that's how it was and we've been brought close, is that what's true? And does that mean that Israel now is a spiritual idea instead of a specific group of people with specific promises from God? We need to answer those questions, and we will. So what did Jesus do to accomplish this unity, and how does that change things? Well, he did three things to, to be, you know, that, that support the fact that he has made both one, that how he made both one, that he is our peace. He did three things. And it does change something. It made something new. So we're going to cover that now in verses 14 and 15. For he is our peace who has made both one. What's the first thing Jesus did to make us both one? 
Well, it says, and he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. The phrase and should not be there. That's a bad translation. This is a participle, not a verb, has broken down. Uh, A participle modifies a verb. It explains it. So the main point of this is he made both one. And then we're going to see all these modifiers here that explain how he did that. So this is not something Jesus did in addition to making us one. It explains how he made us one. And so how is the first way he made us one? Well, he broke down the middle wall of partition between us. The word broke down is a violent word. It means to destroy, to shatter into pieces, to tear or rip down. He ripped down, it says, the middle wall. It's just a a wall or a fence which separates one area from another. We have the lobby out there. We've got a wall here and the sanctuary in here. Okay, separates two areas. But then it says the wall of partition. This is a different word that means a hedge designed to keep one group of people in and one group of people out. All right? So while you might have a wall that separates two areas, the phrase partition is designed to keep one group in one place, the one area, and another group in the other, one out from coming in, okay? Jesus broke that down. Uh, Ralph Earle, in his uh, word book of of the New Testament, he says, this word partition speaks of any social usage, any national peculiarity, or any religious exclusiveness which hedges round one race and shuts out all others from its fellowship. Now, this type of exclusiveness, this exclusionary type of fence, It physically existed on the Temple Mount when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. There was a literal wall around the temple with signs posted at every entrance that said, and I quote, no foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on him shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. If even if you were a believing Gentile, even if you were a Gentile who had converted to faith in the God of Israel, in Jehovah, even if that was the case, you could not go into the court of the women, you couldn't go into the court of the men, or the court of the priests to worship the Lord. You had to worship God behind a wall inside what was called the court of the Gentiles, which is really just a, a very open area all around the temple. That's where you had to worship the Lord. Well, Jesus smashed that wall. He smashed it. Yes, that wall would still exist for a few more years on the Temple Mount after Paul wrote this, but was the Lord's presence on the Temple Mount anymore at that time? No, it was not. He now lived in the hearts of those who believe, right? And so his presence wasn't up there anymore. Jesus smashed that wall when he ripped the veil in two. And the Lord was out in in our hearts and we could come in. Now, before we move on to the next way that Jesus made us one, we must have a talk. No wall should ever be constructed in the church based on race. For years, black skin or dark skin was said to be the mark of Cain, the murderer, He was allowed to live on, but not really deserving of life, and certainly not life like we all have it because of what he did. That that skin color was the mark that God gave to them. 
I've always wondered how they explain that theology in light of the fact that all of Cain's descendants died in the flood. But who am I to let facts get in the way? In addition to that, exclusion of those with black or dark skin and treatment of them as, more, as a morally inferior group was also called the curse of Ham. You remember when, uh, I think it was Canaan came in and he saw, or maybe it was Ham, I, can't, I think it was Ham came in and he saw uh, Abraham, uh, not Abraham, Noah naked because he'd gotten drunk. And he went out and told the brothers, he's like, dad's drunk and naked in the tent, you know? And they were like, and so they come in and they don't even look at their dad. They back in with a, 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 you know, a blanket and they put it on top of him. And then when Noah sobers up, he comes out and he curses Canaan of all people. Uh, and, and so they, they would say, well, that was the curse of, of Ham. He made their skin black or dark. Nonsense. Jewish people have been considered a morally inferior species by multiple colors for centuries. And then today, while far, 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 far shorter in its existence, we have the belief called white privilege, that those with white skin are morally inferior simply because of their white skin. All of those ideologies and any other ideology I didn't mention that creates divisions among men with one group being superior and another inferior simply because of their skin or racial background has no place in the body of Jesus Christ. None. None. Jesus demolished every one of those hedges that puts one group in and one group out, period. Period. A person is to be welcomed into the body of Christ, into the family of God, because of their faith in Christ alone. A person is to be praised or corrected based on their conduct alone. And our beliefs about race and people and all these things are to be formed from Scripture alone. If your words or your thoughts often have the phrase, those blacks, or those white people, or those Native Americans, or those Latinos, or those fill in the blank, you need to repent. You need to repent. Period. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is nothing good in any flesh, whether the skin color of that flesh is white, brown, black, or green, because we can't forget about the space aliens, or any other shade of the color spectrum. There's no good in this flesh, your flesh, whatever tone or shade it looks like to us, to our eyes. None of it. None of us, in because simply because of our flesh, has a moral deficiency or a moral superiority when it comes to understanding right and wrong. Period. And that means every individual needs to humble up and to ask God to search their hearts to see if there is any wicked way in them. No one is exempt from that. No matter how well things have gone for people of their skin color throughout history or how poorly things have gone. No one is exempt from that. No matter how much they may have been mistreated or abused by others throughout history. In every situation of life, 
whether it's this or anything else, we are called to overcome evil with good, not fight evil with evil. And that is true whether you are accused of being inferior because you're white, black, or any other skin color. Because by refusing to return evil for evil and fighting evil with evil is the only way that the evil of racism will be eradicated in our own hearts. And that's the only way that we can be a light that shines so that men can see Jesus in us. And they could see something other than everything the world gives them. Now, Jesus did more than just demolish those exclusionary walls between Jews and Gentiles or any other, any other separation of groups that have existed, any other classes that have existed in society based on nationality or ethnicity or skin color. He did more than just that. Verse 15 tells us that he also, how he became our peace, how he made us one, not just by smashing every exclusionary wall, but also by abolishing any idea that salvation could be by the law. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The word abolished, it means to cause something to be not to function anymore, to make it null and void. Jesus, when he came in the flesh, the incarnation, when God became a man and he lived a sinless life and then he died a sacrificial death for us, he made null and void, it says, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, the enmity that occurred because of that. The enmity means the hostility or the antagonism that was caused by the commandments of the law. Now, why was there hostility because of the commandments of the law? Well, beside the fact that this wall existed, that's part of the hostility, the law itself created division because the law gave a clear way for one person to measure himself against another and say, well, I'm better than you. It gave a way that someone could say, well, I do this and you don't, so I'm better than you. Does that mean the law was bad? No, look at Romans 7. Paul actually asks that question and gives us the answer. Romans 7, verse 7. Paul, up to this point, explaining that if we come to Christ, the law has no more hold over us. We We don't live that way. We don't relate to God that way. In verse 7 of Romans 7, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And what's his reply? God forbid, which means perish the thought, kill that thought, and don't ever let it pop around in your head again. Is the law sin? Nope. Put that thought to death. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, you shall not covet. In other words, the law has a good purpose. It's to show us where we fall short, to show us our sin. I wouldn't know these things. I wouldn't know I was lustful unless the the Bible said, hey, don't lust, don't covet. So the problem isn't the law. He says the problem is sin, but sin taking occasion by the commandment because it existed, it wrought in me all manner of good old King James word, concupiscence. Use that in a sentence next week. Just another word for covetousness or lust. For without the law, sin was dead. You ever want to have a fun, do a fun experiment? 
first get Zach and Tori's permission, and then go bring a huge box of toys into the kids' ministry. And then say, listen, guys, you can play with all these toys that I brought here today. And then grab one and take it out and say, accept this one. And then set the toy down right next to the box and walk away. I guarantee you, if you poke your eye in that room, every kid's eye is looking at what? The one you told them they couldn't touch. There's something that, well, sin, the sin inside of us. When someone says you can't, you say, watch me. I remember a group of pastors, men of great character, sitting around a table at a pastor's conference, and someone came by with a bunch of leftover food or something, goodies, you know, yum-yums, and, and they came by, and they set it down there, and they said, hey, eat whatever you want. Just make sure you save some of this for me. And he left, and we all looked at each other, and he said, who's going to take it first? I'm not saving it for you. <laughs> I didn't want it until you told me I couldn't have it. There's something in us that's wrong. Paul says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I thought I was doing fine. And then God said, don't do this. Now all of a sudden, it's all I can think about. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Why? Because it was bad? No, for sin, my problem. Taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. So the problem isn't that the law is bad. The problem is we can't keep it. And so... Its purpose was to expose our sin and show us our need for a Savior. And so Jesus, by making salvation through faith alone, he reestablished the true function of the law by eliminating the antagonism and the hostility of self-righteousness. None of us here can say, (laughs) well, you know, I know you're saved and all, but I kept more of the law before I got saved than you did. You only kept 24% and I kept 38%. Like, none of us can do this. That's not how being a Christian works, right? Like, like you're either in or you're out. You know, our, our relationship with God doesn't work like that. You're either lost or you're found. You're separated from Christ or you're in Christ. And that means if you're in Christ, you're in the same class as everyone else who's in Christ. In the same class of people. There's no divisions in the, in the body of Christ. And that's true whether you kept a lot of God's law before you got saved or you didn't even know it existed before you got saved. Which brings us to the third way Jesus is our peace. He, not only did he, did he break down every exclusionary wall, not only did he abolish salvation, the idea of salvation by the law, but he made something new. He created a new entity. It says in verse 15, for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. This is why Jesus destroyed the wall and why he abolished self-righteousness is in order to create something which did not exist before. That's what the word to make new means. To make in himself of twain one new man. The word make means to create something which didn't exist before. And what he made only exists in Christ. In other words, those, it only applies to those of us who are in Christ. And so what did Jesus, what's the new thing he created in himself? Well, it says, of twain, one new man. From out of the two, Jew and Gentile, he created one new man. Not new uh, in a point of time, but new in quality. Something completely different that didn't exist before. 
Jesus created us as an entirely new entity. Whatever you were before you got saved, your ethnicity, your race, your, you know, your pursuits, all those things, whatever you were or could be described as before you got saved, you were now created as a new entity with a new name. Child of God. Christian. One who follows Jesus. And all of those, wherever they come from, from the two groups, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're now something new, and everyone who's new makes up a new group, the church, Jesus' bride. Now, that answers some of our questions we asked earlier. That means the church does not replace Israel. We're an entirely new entity. We are an entirely new entity. This also means that the existence of the church does not undo God's promises to Israel as a people group. Those still exist. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel as a group that he, he made special promises to, and it means we're an entirely new entity. But it does mean now that this new entity that Jesus created, it is completely different. We're Jewish or Gentile or any other racial or ethnic or national distinction does not matter. It doesn't matter. Wherever you came from doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because he made peace. Because following Jesus brings harmony and tranquility to our relationships with one another, whatever they were like prior to coming to Christ. If you were on this side and they were on that side and you said, we hate them and they hate us, when you come to Christ, that's all undone. It's all undone. He made peace. And he can do that because all of our lives before Christ were filled with sin, whichever side you thought you were on, good side or a bad side. And so because all of our lives before Christ were filled with sin, we put our past prejudice behind us and we forgive one another even as Christ forgave us. That's the basis of why we forgive always. We forgive because Christ forgave me. And so we lay down our cultural, our political, and our ethnic hatreds because our common ground in Christ matters more. If you are in Christ today, your identity is not bound up in any of those things that the unsaved bind their lives to. It is bound up in the fact that you've been forgiven and you've been enthroned together, not just with Jesus, but with one another. Now, you say, well, I don't like people very much. It's okay, I didn't either. Jesus changed me. He can change you. It's what he does, right? It's what he does. You know, when we return to Ephesians in two weeks, we'll finish the chapter by looking how Jesus also brought peace between us and God, but... Well, that's an awesome thought. It is an equal blessing that if you're in Christ, you are never alone. You're never in a place where you don't belong. You always belong. You always have a family. One of my favorite things is to bump into a Christian, you know, I've never met before, and maybe even is from the other side of the world, and you meet him on an airplane or somewhere or whatever, and all of a sudden you start talking with one another and you have fellowship together. It's the coolest thing. Because you're like, you're fam, right? You're fam, even though I've never met you before. But you're family. 
You've been made part of something that transcends all the walls and all the customs and all the laws and all the hostility that the world creates to separate human beings. Now, we crave that. Everybody wants to belong. No matter even how much of a loner you are, everybody wants to belong. And so we have this huge void in our society right now where, just to give an example. So, you know, for example, I, I talked to a lot of young people today and, and they'll be, you know, I'm not attracted to anybody so I think I might be gay. And I say, where'd you get that idea? So much in our, our culture is about, everything's about attraction. Everything's about sex, you know? And, and so if you're not attracted to, to someone of the opposite sex, well, then you must be attracted to something else. God forbid that you just grow up as a person. I'm not really attracted to anybody right now, you know? We, we are not animals that walk around, you know, sniffing the wind, looking for someone in heat or someone who's in heat, just looking for somebody to come and, and fill a need. Like that's not how we, we live. We don't operate that way. We are human beings. We are made in the image of God. I'm not just dragged around by my desires. I'm not just an animal. If that were the case, I'd be married to pizza. (laughs) And I'd be a polygamist because I'd be married to wings and all sorts of other things. But when we don't feel like we're part of any group, we long to try to find where we belong. And because our society is so sexualized and so filled with this idea of, you know, who are you attracted to? You know, what are you attracted to? Who do you think you are? And trying to understand these things. And so they say, well, if you're not this, you have to be this. It's rubbish. If you're a Christian, you belong, you have a family. You don't need to go looking anywhere else for it. Even though you might feel alone. That's the truth. And isn't that how, uh, you know, how we exercise faith? Like, like it's easy to come in here and everybody's saying, yeah, we surrender all and everybody's surrendering everything. And then you go out there and, you know, somebody cuts you off and the Lord's like, don't do it. And you're like, oh, you don't surrender all, you know? Right, it's not the same, you know? But that's where faith comes in, right? I'm gonna trust what God says even though it goes dead against how I feel. So, you might feel alone, but you're not. You might feel like you don't belong, but you do. Because God says you do. It's what Jesus did for you. And if God has welcomed you, as well as everyone else who's in Christ, into his family, can you not do the same? Can you not do the same? You know, celebrating the Lord's Supper isn't just about remembering what Jesus did for me. There's a reason we do it publicly. It's about doing so together with my family. It's about the fact that you could look over at every single person here who's holding that bread and holding that cup of juice, and you can look over and say, you too? And they go, me too. Me too, remembering first, I was without Christ, without hope. But me too, Jesus rescued me by his blood. And you can look at anybody in here and you can say, we're in this together.
We're in this together. We belong. Even though we might have differences in every other areas of our life. It is about the fact that we were all of us in the same trouble and all of us have experienced the same great salvation. That we are united with bonds that are stronger than blood, skin color, or nationality by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the new covenant that he has brought us into. And so as we celebrate that this morning, we sing and then we remember by holding the elements, will you remember that this morning too? Let's pray. Lord, how we need you because our world wants to separate, it wants to um, you know, hold down, push down, critique, wants to build up my group. Well, Lord, we're all in one group and it's your family. It's the only group that matters. And so here we are today as we're gonna celebrate, uh, Lord, this, this you know, Passover ritual that you instituted that, that now has meaning for us as the body of Christ, Lord. We're gonna all do it together in recognition and remembrance of not just what you did for me as an individual, but what you did for our family, all of us together. Lord, all of us were in trouble All of us had sinned and fell short of a glory. All of us were lost. All of us were children of wrath because we chose to be children of disobedience. But you rescued us by your great love. Lord, we choose to remember that, to worship you and thank you for that today. And to thank you for making us part of your family together. We give you this time to do that in Jesus' name.